as human beings to find the best part of who we are, which is what we're all trying to do with our self-optimization and our meditation and our yoga classes and our gym and our, you know, aren't we all doing this all the time? And this is the culture that we've bred of better, 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 better. But maybe better is so much more gentle and so much more soft, right? If we just go into, into nature, whether it's a city park or if you're lucky enough to be able to travel to a wild wide open space it can flow right it can come in and and then i find that's when my ideas come that's when my creativity comes that's when the best part of of falling in love with myself of of who i am as a human being happens in those spaces it doesn't happen when i'm fighting the streets of new york or trying to get on a subway because that's when i'm the worst person and and how i don't like myself in those moments because i'm fighting Whereas in the wild, I love who I am and I feel my beauty as a woman, as an entrepreneur. That's where I feel me. And I wish that for everybody. Hey, friends, welcome to The Good Life with Michelle Lamoureux, a show for women in midlife who want to live happier, healthier and more meaningful lives. I'm your host, Michelle Lamoureux, a self-love coach and the author of design a life you love. And together we're going to be doing just that. Each week I bring on world-class experts, best-selling authors, leading entrepreneurs, and also do solo casts with the intention of inviting you to get connected to what you really desire from your life. This show is produced with love every week. There's inspiration and actionable tips in every episode because I want to see women playing a starring role in their lives instead of living on the sidelines. Be sure to join the Good Life Community newsletter over at thegoodlifecoach.com for more inspiration and tips to live your best midlife. And make sure you're following the show on your favorite podcast player. I'm so glad that you're here. Hey friends, it's Michelle Lamoureux and welcome back. Today we have a really interesting show for you. And it's unlike any other conversation you've heard in over 260 episodes. So I'm really excited to share it with you. We're going to be talking with Deborah Kalmeyer, who's a visionary leader in the travel industry, women's activist and conservationist. Deborah is the CEO of Roar Africa, and she's on to help us think of travel as a way to reconnect, not simply to escape and to answer the profound question, why do people travel? Deborah launched Roar Africa 16 years ago with a vision to curate journeys designed to harness the power of nature and facilitate the discovery of peace and purpose while offering a deep reconnection with ourselves. The past two years have drawn more and more people to wild places as a means to recenter and restore themselves. And Africa provides some of the last wild landscapes on our increasingly fragmented planet. Deborah understands the transformative power of the African bush and how when we turn down the noise and remove the demands of travel, we can experience something not attained elsewhere. Deborah grew up on a farm in the Zimbabwean bush. Her pioneering family have a 
330-plus-year history in Southern Africa, and hers was a childhood deeply infused with Indigenous culture and also with wildlife, swimming with hyenas in the pool, water skiing on a crocodile-infested lake, her family's beloved pet lioness, Carmel, that she thought was a Labrador. So right now, I'm so excited to welcome you to, uh, or to introduce you to, to Deborah. Um, welcome, Deborah. What an interesting... <laughs> story already. I'm fascinated. (laughs) Thank you so much, Michelle. It's lovely to be here. I think we have to start with your childhood because uh, most of us didn't have a pet lion and definitely were not uh, water skiing on crocodile infested lakes on purpose. So um, just take us into into your early childhood and just curiosity, the hyenas, the lion, these were pets? Yeah, those were pets. Um, So it is. I mean, it does sound really outrageous. I know uh, I have a pretty crazy father who is a zoologist. And um, yeah, you know, those years of the 70s, 80s in in Africa um, were glorious for many people and a sort of very idyllic life with beautiful weather and nice big gardens, but also in the middle of the bush. And so, uh, yeah, my dad loves loves animals. And um, the lioness was a rescue. And it was just after the um, War of Liberation when Rhodesia became Zimbabwe. And um, my dad was very tired of all the security. He'd been in the army and he said, I'm not having any more alarms and fences. And my sister, little sister at the time, she must have been about nine, said, uh, why don't we get a lion? And uh, he thought that was a great idea. So we rescued this lioness. She was very small. Her name was Carmel. And uh, she lived in the house with our two Labradors. And no. uh she was amazing in many ways is the reason for my connection to the wild, I think. I mean, I was the least likely lioness dinner as a 12-year-old girl. <laughs> my younger siblings were much more likely. But, um, yeah, it was really crazy. I mean, she came in the car to drop us at school, and it was always a big frenzy. My friends would come running to me and be like, oh, your lion's here, your lion's here. And no one was allowed to come to my house ever because their parents didn't want their children with the lioness. <laughs> Um, But it is where my connection with the wild came in because, um, you know, I witnessed I witnessed her affection and her love and Mm. her she was addicted to my dad. That was her sort of boss and and love. And, you know, he's six, three. She'd run up to him and put her paws on his chest and nuzzle into his neck. And they're so similar to us. Animals are Mm. so similar to us and have the same needs. And. Um, it was a, such a joy, as much as a fear, watching her in our home and stalking and, you know, playing and and those sort of wild uh, animal behaviors coming into play. But there was a lot that, you know, as a human being, we could identify with as well. So that was Carmel. And she stayed with us till she was really big. She was a fully grown lioness by then. Um, and she just got a little bit too powerful for the dogs and and all of us. So she went into being in some of the movies <laughs> she became an actress for real no for real yeah she was in uh <laughs> king solomon's mines with uh sharon stone and <laughs> yeah it's 
crazy. Because she was well behaved, right? I yeah, mean, she, and been... you could be human. You know, she was she was comfortable with humans. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> she became an actress. That's not yeah. a bad second act for her. I think <laughs> we or you know, my shows for women in midlife. I think we're all looking for a second act. And it sounds like Carmel's found a good one for herself. Um, that's unbelievable. Um and the dogs were fine with her? Like, were they? I mean, the dogs found her pretty rough. You know, she was very strong and her paws would oh like you know, hit a Labrador to go flying. But they all played together for a long time. But um, yeah, she, I mean, it, crazily, she was, you know, friends with the pig that lived next door to her. They'd touch noses through the fence. Oh, and, my God. Um, you know, I think people scaredest of her were visitors to our house, you know, where she'd just be sitting there on the veranda and then trot down the stairs and people would be like, oh my goodness, it's not a statue. You know, that's a, that's a real lion. And they'd get in their car and not come back. So anyway, it's crazy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Well, not the typical childhood, but sounds like a beautiful childhood and one that informed who and what you would become. So, I mean, what made you start Roar Africa and tell us about what, what, what it is that you do now? So I moved from the real jungle to the concrete jungle of New York City as a 24-year-old um, lady at that time. And I didn't really realize how much I would miss Africa. You know, mm. when you grow up at the bottom of the continent and you're always looking out, it's everything America does, who Americans are, you know, that's what you want to become. And then when I got to New York, I expected it to be a bit like a friend's sitcom and that was going to be living <laughs> in those apartments and having that fun. And it was a really rocky, hard bang into reality um, of just how tough it was. And my love for Africa, the wild, open spaces, quiet, just expanded. And, um, you know, I started to talk a lot about it and people would ask me, you know, oh, I want to go to South Africa or Zimbabwe and they'd show me itineraries and it was a little bit distressing seeing some of the geography and the planning and, and my dad was sort of very anxious, 65-year-old white male in the new South Africa, couldn't find a job. And I said to him, well, why don't you become a guide and uh, I'll send you a few clients and some some Americans. And my dad's always been crazy about Americans. He's very enthusiastic and a lot of energy. And, and I think the American culture is just the perfect match for him specifically. Yes. And that was crazily enough how I started Raw Africa. It was supposed to be a sort of small little side shuffle for my dad in his retirement, um, taking around a couple Americans a year. And that's how we began. And I didn't realize <laughs> that I would turn into a CEO running a, you know, very big company today. So, you know, wow. um, it's against those normal business school models and planning. It was all intuition, really. <laughs> Which, you know, honestly, a lot of the entrepreneurs that come on do talk about their gut and really following that and listening to that and and staying true to that. So I, I love that it was more of an intuitive versus like, let's get a business plan and create something. It was more organic because of need. And I think that's what creates a lot of very successful companies is filling mm -hmm. an actual need that people have and doing it with excellence like you have. I think, you know, what I've learned over the years is is feeling into things is so much more important, you know, and I only recognize that looking at the business sort of backwards now, 16, mm. 17 years later, and those moments where I've used intuition first and then intelligence have really, really paid off. Um, and I, I have to force myself to stop and feel today versus 
oh, what I know, what I know, what I know, you know, and numbers, numbers, numbers. And I never built the company to be a numbers company. It's evolved into sharing something I think is incredibly precious and rare, and that is diminishing because of human population growth and trophy hunting and, mm. uh, you know, all these challenges with climate crisis. And so there's so many things sort of colliding to try to take the last remaining spaces in the wild away from us. Mm. And it now seems like incredibly urgent work, incredibly important work to get people to come and experience these last remaining wild spaces and the animals so different to what we experience on TV or in a movie, right? Yes. You just translate it and what they do for our human psyche and how what kind of a world we would be if we lost all of this. And we are genuinely losing this, you know, we are. And um, so I think the work has become really, really important and it's so so much driven by emotion, um, but you know, really a desperate need as well. So tell us. So then, your your work and your you know what got so you started with your dad. So where did it evolve from there? Like, what's your how how is it positioned now in terms of what? So um, what we do today is provide. Um, really ultra luxe experiences in Africa uh, geared towards American guests. I think um, having lived in New York, I've really had a lens on how hard Americans work, how precious the vacation time is, and how that really needs to be a very restorative reconnection for families, for husbands, wives, for friends, um, how precious that time is. And I think, you know, the way that we design and deliver these experiences in Africa is really curated to bring a sense of safety, of stillness, of quiet to the very frenzied sort of frenetic life of, of most Americans to get them to Africa, which is a big step and very scary for many people. But from the moment they arrive to really wrap them in love and comfort and have really well-spoken English-speaking guides and helpers and, you know, people throughout their journey to take care of all their needs, to, to take away the fight. Because I feel like travel today is a fight. It's a grind. It's hard. It's what am I going to be faced with next? Who's going to let me know next? It's just a series of disappointments. And then, you know, to go to Africa, What's the food going to be like? What's going to bite me? You know, who's going to let me down here? And now I'm in a foreign place. What's it going to be like? So having been living in America for 22 years, having an appreciation for, you know, the stressful life, uh, very intense work life that people have, we've been able to really design these experiences very specifically. And I speak for America because I think we have differences in what Europeans and Africans might have in terms of a, a vacation versus an American, very limited time. Um, and so that's what we do today. We focus on 12 countries in sub-Saharan Africa, providing these luxury safari experiences but also diving into food and wine and music and all sorts of things. Depending on what your need is, we will design a trip around you. So I often say to people, we work like an architect. Instead of dreaming, uh, designing your dream home, we're designing your dream African experience. Wow. So it can cross everything. And certain parts of Africa, 
are on the menu, if you will, versus... Yeah, I mean, yeah. people come and they say, where should I go? And then, you know, it's it's a series of questioning and understanding what are they looking for? What are they imagining? You know, what have they seen on TV? What have their friends told them? So it could be South Africa, it could be Botswana, it could be the Great Migration in Kenya or Tanzania, it could be the gorillas in Rwanda or Uganda. So there is a cross-section of experiences available, as well as the Indian Ocean Islands, um, Mauritius, Seychelles. Whatever. So there are lots of combinations, but for most people, Africa is a safari destination. Absolutely. How <laughs> It's so fascinating. How have you figured this out? How have you designed this to find the people? I mean, you've just talked about such a large area where you could go and really have it so customized. Um, how have you designed, you know, found, like you said, the English speaking people or all these really custom experiences? I mean, I think we, you know, when I decided to start the business, I started with South Africa because I have a long family history there and realized that we had a lot of connections and a lot of behind the scenes access and a lot of understanding of how to make things happen um, through airports or rallying aircrafts or doing last minute handstands for people that wouldn't necessarily be positive, uh, possible in other countries. Yeah, And then sort of expanded that. And I always said we will only work where we have our own people. So a bit different with Raw Africa compared to other travel specialists in the United States, they would outsource the delivery of the trip to a company on the ground in whichever country their client was going to. So when you travel with us, you stay with one company, you stay with Raw Africa all the way. Yeah. My people will meet you in the airports, guide you, look after you. We don't own any properties. So we spend a huge amount of time vetting where we send people. Has the chef changed? Has the management changed? What's the security like? When was it refurbed? So that when you make that kind of investment, travel that far, you get to the right place. I mean, there's nothing more soul-destroying than getting to a hotel and being like, oh, I wish I was staying down the road, right? So that's the work that we do in terms of how we select places. And then understanding, you know, you've got a family, you've got a two-year-old, or you've got teenagers, or we've got granny and grandpa coming what's going to be the best fit for you. So we work with, you know, only a few clients at a time in terms of the design yeah. so that we can make sure it's appropriate. And then obviously in the delivery, you've got my entire team on the ground available 24 seven. You're not trying to get, ho get hold of somebody in the U S and it's a, he said, she said, they didn't tell me situation, which is the last thing you need when your time is so precious. Um, so that's how we do it. We only work in the countries where we have our own people. Understand? Yeah. How many have you done now yourself? <laughs> well, gosh, I don't know. I've lost count of myself, but we do about two hundred trips a year. Wow, that's unbelievable. Well, I'd love to talk um, about what you say here. That you say that being in the wild is a prescription for the soul. So you said the noise and chatter and busyness fall away. The wild transforms us without saying a word. Humankind is fragile and ripe for this now, and we're depleted. And you say that um, it's a call a nature, what you call a nature deficit disorder. Tell us what's going on, especially if you went from South Africa to New York. I mean, you have to seek out the greenery there. I mean, if you've got Central Park, but not much else. So, um, what 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 do you see happening? I think that you know, I often ask my myself the question: you know, why do people travel? Why do we travel? 
And it's become, to me, it's become this like requirement of any body at any um, sort of economic standing, right? They want to travel. There's this desperate desire to travel. And in, in my own sort of growth and, and uh, travel myself, I ask myself, what am I looking for? Why mm. am I traveling? Mm. And I really think it comes down to I want those moments of, oh, and so it's the moments of awe, right? Whether it's mm. looking at a beautiful painting or the architecture of an incredible building or a sunrise or a sunset or a huge big bull elephant that's looking into your eyes, it's, oh, you know, so we're searching for awe. And you might find it in a city. And and if you look hard enough and you go slowly enough, I'm sure certainly in the in the European cities one would would find it. But even if you're looking at the Freedom Tower in New York, you know, if you if you stand still and you and you look up and leave the busyness and the chaos and I don't know how you get rid of the noise in New York, but some of that behind and focus, one can find awe. And I think, you know. That's what I'm trying to do in how we design the trips is sort of taking people out of the busyness of their own heads and trying to stop that that monkey mind of panicking and worrying about the next thing, right? Because it's very much bred into our psyche of, of now what? Okay, I've got nothing to worry about or nothing to fight about. So now what am I going to do? I'm going to find another problem, right? And, and that sort of draws that problem in towards you. And being in the wild... You know, I don't know how many times I've been, as I said, but there's nothing like that moment when I get on the Land Rover and I go on that first game drive and just feeling the air, feeling the air on my skin, feeling my feet on the ground. It's like, oh, you know, the shoulders drop, the, the breath starts at a, moving at a much better pace. The space inside my head, it's almost immediate. And I think that's what, is so powerful about these experiences and how desperately needed they are for yes. us as as human beings to to find the best part of who we are, which is what we're all trying to do with our self optimization and our meditation and our yoga classes and our gym and our you know so aren't we all doing this all the time? And this is the culture that we've bred of better, yes. better, better, better. But maybe better is so much more gentle and so much more soft right if we just go into into nature whether it's a city park or if you're lucky enough to be able to travel to a wild wide open space it can flow right it can come in and and then I find that's when my ideas come that's when my creativity mm. comes that's when the best part of of falling in love with myself of, of who I am as a human being happens in those spaces. It doesn't happen when I'm fighting the streets of New York or trying to get on a subway because that's the, when I'm the worst person and, and how I don't like myself in those moments because I'm fighting. Whereas in the wild, I love who I am and I feel my beauty as a woman, as an mm. entrepreneur, as a, yeah, that, that's where I feel me. And I wish that for, for everybody. Mm, so beautiful. I know three different people who've been on, and is it called Safari? Is that the appropriate Yeah, yeah Safari, yeah. That's is that right. correct? So, yes. um, and all came back transformed, yeah. life-changing. I mean, yeah. no, I don't think anyone goes and doesn't find it life-changing and transformative because, I mean, you wonder and awe, I mean. You do, you do. You're remembering the essence of like humanity, no? I mean, exactly. that seems what it is. 
It is. And that's, I think, what's so incredibly powerful. And just remember the word safari in Swahili means to journey. Ah, it's to journey. Yeah. And so it's such a enormous investment in oneself when one is going on a safari. Yes, they are very expensive, but when yeah. you break down and you you think of what you're getting, yeah, I mean, it's a priceless experience and it is life-changing. And I never expected the reward of people coming back to me saying things like, you changed my life. You know, I see the world differently now. Yeah. And um, now I understand that. And I mm. can work with it and I can 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 work towards it for different people in different ways mm. and make things more meaningful for them personally. Um, but yeah, as 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 you say, your friends have said that to you, and it's the gift of the job, right? Uh, mm. To to return people to the world a slice kinder, a little bit more gentle. That's mm. when the job's done, you know. It's not for me, okay, let's have 3,000 people come and you know, my revenue is going to be this and then I'm going to take my company public. That's so funny. Um, yeah, one of my friends in particular, I think she's been three times. I mean, the whole family fell in love with it so much that like, it was her mother's birthday. It's like, okay, we're going back. When it was her mm-hmm. daughter's, you know, it's like they just needed that. Mm-hmm. for their soul to just go back. I mean, it was that sort of high level, like what you're talking about, transformative experience and also just first first class, you know, where everything is. So it's comfortable within, within nature. Can you share a story of stillness? I have two things I can tell you. I can tell you my moment of stillness. I was, an, I was eight years old. I was in the swimming pool at so we don't didn't have a beach house because I lived in Zimbabwe, which is a, a landlocked country. But we had a like a holiday house up on the Zambezi River, and um, I was in the pool. I think everyone else was taking a nap. I was in the pool by myself, and a big bull elephant came towards the swimming pool to have a drink. And I could tell I couldn't. I didn't have time to get out. There was nothing I could do. I was stuck, and I just remember clinging to the side of the pool and this huge elephant came towards me to drink. And I mean, I was so suffocated with fear that I probably couldn't have moved even if I wanted to move, but he started drinking and I froze and it was such a moment. And it stayed with me my, my whole life because I knew to stand still. I remember from my dad all the time, don't, don't run, don't run. You know, even with the lion, don't run, stand still. And so I can, you know, blazoned into my brain and I was still. And we shared this moment where my respect for, for wildlife, for that animal, for that spirit that was there in front of me was just so profound and so life-changing because I, I was immediately like, if I don't hurt it, it's not going to hurt me. It's just trying to have a drink. It doesn't yes. care if I'm there. But yes. if I run, it's going to get all crazy and alert and chase me. Or I don't know what's going to happen. Probably maybe it might have done anything. But but in that stillness was this sort of, you know, almost like a sort of cathedral moment of of me and this elephant. And I'll never, ever forget that. And I don't know whether one can always be still, <laughs> but it's quite interesting that that sharing of human-animal connection that happened. Um, it was a very, very special moment. And he finished drinking and he just gently walked away 
And um, I don't know what I did. I can't remember, but I do remember that moment. <laughs> so that's so beautiful. So you write though. So I understand. So it says breaking with more than a century of an entrenched tradition in an industry that has seen men leading safaris and women relegated to housekeeping roles at best. You have brought women, specifically indigenous women, to the forefront, and you host an annual women's empowerment retreat. Can you talk more about this? Because this is a show for women. We're all about supporting other women. And I am curious about the indigenous women and how, you know, life is for them within sort of this this landscape. Yeah, with pleasure. I mean, I think I've grown up in a very patriarchal society. You know, I grew up on a farm. Uh, My dad was had 300 laborers on the farm. They were all men. There were no women. The women that were working were my nannies. (laughs) That's it, right? And so it's always been front and center for me in a very rural, uh, with a very rural lens, I would say. Mm -hmm. And when I came into the safari industry, I witnessed it again, you know, safari lodges mostly owned by white men, Mm. very few women owners, and then safari guides, men. And uh, where were the women? Oh, they were in the kitchen. They were in housekeeping. And why is that? For me, as a woman, I think that tourism is in our DNA. Like we know we are caregivers, we are caterers, we are providers, we homemakers. Like this is an industry that is so innate to us as women. And it's something so extraordinary, um, powerful that could be filled with so much pride for people at every Mm. level. You know, that's what I love about it is even if it's a porter in an airport in Africa, he's so excited to welcome you and bring you in and, and all of that. So, so women I, are nurturers. I, yeah. And I, I really thought hard about how do we change this? And, you know, what I love about America is, you know, the sort of fight for equality in different ways. And I was very privileged to have many women who've accomplished their careers, um, be clients of mine and uh, Pat Mitchell, who, um, you know, founder of Ted Woman and has done some remarkable things, uh, Jane Fonda, those kinds of people who have been an inspiration and have helped me get a voice. Because I think one thing you learn having worked in New York and built a business is you have to be confident, you have to find your voice. And it, it's it's very empowering and has helped me so much. And so how do I use my voice for other African women? How do I change this protocol? And so putting together these women's empowerment retreats, which we do once a year in a mm. different country, we take women travelers from around the world, it happens to have been mostly American, um, and then we get women who are working in tourism to share their stories. So whether mm. they're saving elephants or lions or have become the top female percussionist in Kenya or are pilots or rangers or whatever it is, help them have a platform to tell their story um, and then, you know, see where it goes. Because a lot of them are working in grassroots things with menstrual health or whatever it might be, but Mm. these are women who probably wouldn't get to TED Woman or wouldn't get to get support from other foundations. You know, they're really struggling on the ground, but this gives them a platform to share their story and to also hear from other international women their stories. And so it's this beautiful collision of people, of ladies from all parts of of the world supporting each other, you know, incredible things have come from this. Books have been written, documentary films made, um, incredible support for different programs. 
Americans are so philanthropic and so incredibly generous and love to get involved. And so that's a beautiful thing about bringing American travelers to Africa is they're so keen to help and they're so keen to uplift these these women. And so it's really been way more successful than I anticipated. But the best thing of all, Michelle, is that the lodges and the visual has had impact. So, you know, just the power of perception. So, for example, in April this year, we did one in Zimbabwe and um, had to use all men guides because there were no women guides in Zimbabwe. There were none. And some of the wait staff witnessed a woman guide that I brought from South Africa to work with the men. And she was like, I didn't know women could be a guide. And I oh, was like, why not? Wow. Yeah, she and so it's so it. interesting. She hadn't seen it before. Yeah. And so she's now enrolled to become a guide because she saw it. And she's like, this mm. is a possibility. I don't just have to be a waitress. I can be a guide, guiding guests, which means I can probably earn more money, support more people. And so career paths have been opened up by this, by just the visual, you know, and people seeing other opportunities. So that's been really, you know, probably one of the more, most rewarding things in my career that I didn't anticipate that I really felt into and now feel incredibly strongly about and have great support of women guest travelers who sign up every year. Some have come four or five times and uh, we've done it in Rwanda and Kenya in Zimbabwe and South Africa. Wow. That's amazing. And it, but is it once a year? It's once a year, yeah. yeah. Once a year, and yeah. then we, you know, have it's, it's a little bit of like TED Talks goes on safari, you know. That so kind of cool! Thing. That's yeah. sign me yeah. up. I'm coming next. Time. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds phenomenal. Are you kidding me? What do you want to make sure the women who are listening today really take away from this conversation and understand about the importance of of the wild and rewilding and connecting to that silence and all of what we've been talking about? Yeah, I think that, you know, making sure we spend time in the wild, you know, even if it is just a city park, if that's all that's accessible and and appreciating those beautiful little flowers or the sunsets or the sunrises, but trying to find the beauty, just a portion of the day, each day makes us more beautiful as women, makes us more sensitive as women, makes us more gentle as women. And embodying and and owning that femininity and and loving that, allowing ourselves to fall in love with ourselves, just makes us even that much more beautiful. And I think that's the beauty that we need to carry into the world. You know, fight the fight of being equal, but hang on to the femininity, the sensitivity, the beauty. And and that comes from being in the wild. For me, I'm not saying it comes for everybody, but it, it is a place to go and find that. That would be my message to to any woman is there's so much beauty in who we are and how powerful we are. But I think those are the things that make us really shine. So let them shine. Mm, So beautiful. And I appreciate you saying that because it's true. Not everyone can afford the safari. So for the women who are listening who can, we're going to make sure you have the information for for Africa because it sounds phenomenal. Like I said, I don't like the word bucket list. What an ugly word, right? A bucket is like where you keep, you know, you think of like water. I think of like a desire list. It's been on my desire list for many years. Um, But I really love what you said about connecting to the femininity. I mean, we call it mother earth for a reason. We have the ability, whether or not we choose to, to birth life. And Mm. 
right? And and all of the nature around us is birthing life and giving us life, whether it's the oxygen or the sunshine that we need. And, you know, the science is there too. So the, everybody's earthing now and walking on the beach, yeah. you know, find it in the ways that you can. But I think it would be absolutely incredible to be on safari, to be reminded of our humanity in this way that would is just probably unmanageable until you experience it. Yeah, it is an incredibly profound, life-changing experience. And, you know, it can be accessible in more affordable ways. There are different ways to do it. You don't need to use raw Africa for it. Um, I would encourage anyone to try to get to it if they could. Uh, yeah, it's it's precious and rare, and we have to do everything we can to protect it for our livelihood as humans on this planet. You know, in the same way we have to protect the forests, the oceans, everything. They're all part of us. That's right. We're all we are all connected, truly. We're interconnected uh, at our very core. Well, I like to just ask a fun question because the show is called The Good Life. What does living a good life mean to you specifically? <laughs> um, gosh, you know, spending as much time in the wild is really the good life. I mean, that is that is it. And I I feel like I've been so fortunate in that I curated a career that leads me back there again and again. And being able to share that, you know, I think when you come from Africa, you never stop wanting to share it. And so I do consider my life a very, very good life. So that's so great. I love hearing that. Um, where do I direct people to learn more about Rural Africa and about your work? Where Where do you like to... Uh... Um, I would just say our website, rawafrica.com, and it's raw like a lion, not (laughs) R-A-W. So rawafrica.com and and yeah, social media, we're there. Yeah. Wonderful. And all of the show notes for today will be over at thegoodlifecoach.com. I hope that you will share this interview with your friends. It's such a beautiful and interesting conversation. I think, like I said, we never have covered this before. And um, what you're talking about is really reconnecting to our source, our humanity, our femininity, our power, our knowing. I mean, it's so profound. And yes, and and I appreciate you saying, even if you can't afford a war Africa, to still try to seek out that um, profound experience in some way if you can do it. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you. It's been lovely talking to you. Thanks for all the questions. Oh, it's such a pleasure. This has been so fantastic. So thank you for your time today. No, thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you gained some new information or inspiration for your life. That is that the essence of this show is to really wake up to what's possible for you to reclaim your beautiful voice and to really learn to love and prioritize yourself. So if you gained any value from any of the conversations you've tuned into, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can do that right now on your phone. And please do consider leaving a rating and review if you have yet to do so on Apple Podcasts. It's actually how more women can find the show. And I really want to grow a community of women who are loving themselves and living full on. So thank you as always for tuning in. And I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.